Greetings and welcome to the Upward Call number 16, To God Be the Glory. To God Be the Glory. This is the 16th and final installment of this series called The Upward Call. And I'll remind you as we've been going through the series that what The Upward Call is really about is The Upward Call is the call we have in God to become like Jesus Christ. It's called The Upward Call in Jesus Christ. And what the book of Philippians the letter to the Philippians teaches us is to how to have this mindset and the practices that produce progress in response to this upward call. Paul says near the middle of the letter that he uh, desires to do nothing but to strive forward, reaching forward uh, in response to this upward call. And indeed, that's what we want to do is we want to follow him in that. He uh, invites us to join him, invites us to imitate him in uh, this upward call in our progress in these ways. Today's passage, we're looking at the ending of the letter in chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 14 and go through 20, which is just about the end of the letter. There's a few greetings afterwards, uh, but they're, they're pretty standard, and we're going to take a look very closely at this closing that he makes. Paul covers at the end of the letter what's essentially his last topic of the letter, and he expresses his gratitude for their help. And then he puts it in proper perspective uh, that he is both graciously uh, thanking them for this gift, but at the same time, he is saying that, you know, he is content in any situation. In other words, he is revealing to them uh, that it is important to be content that indeed God has made him so in any situation. But without minimizing what they had done for him, he, he gives them this great lesson. And that way he doesn't appear to be soliciting more by expressing this gratitude in the way that he does. And then Paul is led naturally into, as, as he speaks about these things, uh, very common endings that Paul does at the end of his letters. He has a benediction and then a doxology. And maybe this will help if I put the words up there for you. Uh, the uh, first of all, chapter or chapter four, verse nineteen is a benediction, and a benediction is is very simply uh, a statement of blessing or good wishes given at or near the end of a letter. And he says there in four nineteen, "My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus." And then verse 20 is what we call a doxology. Now, what he's essentially saying in the benediction here is, is as he sums up what he said, look, you've met my needs through your gift. Now, God is going to meet your needs as part of his display of his beauty and magnificence through Christ Jesus. And we'll explain that as we talk about what glory is in the coming minutes. Doxology is what he states next, and a doxology is simply a series of declarations of praise, announcing who God is and what he has done. Sometimes they're in the form of a song, and we see that in Philippians 4.20, uh, the last verse of the passage we're looking at today, where Paul says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And in essence, this is a bit of a prayer, a prayer to God. It expresses a desire and that he would be glorified, that he would have glory and receive glory forever and ever. And then it ends with the standard, so let it be. In other words, the word amen. So it's essentially a prayer. Give God all the credit. And the connection to between these two things, this benediction and his wrapping up this last topic of his letter to them, and this, then, this final doxology is the word glory. And that's what we're going to do is we're going to take a very close look at the word glory today. And we're going to see how indeed all of this letter can be connected to the concept of glory and the concept of God's people giving him glory or glorifying him. Let's take a look at our verses now in chapter uh, 4. We're going to start with verse 14 and go through verse 20. It says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, 
except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, it would be fitting for us to open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for your servant, Paul. We thank you for the occasion of the writing of this letter because indeed you were glorified in that this church cared for Paul. They cared for his ministry. They supplied his needs and you used them greatly to further the gospel through him. Lord, I pray today that we will understand these things and we will understand what it means that you would receive glory. So I pray today that you will help us to glorify you as we learn these things. Send your spirit to give us understanding of your word and help us, Lord, have shapeable, malleable hearts that indeed can be touched, affected, and molded by you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our text, we saw the importance of the word glory there in the last two verses. And I want to speak about glory in a couple of different ways. First of all, as a theological concept, I want to talk about glory as an attribute of God. Glory as an attribute of God. In this way, glory would refer to God's wonderful beauty, his magnificence, everything that's great about God. Uh, it's defined by Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible as the singular splendor of God and its consequences for mankind. So this is really about his wonderful beauty, his magnificence, but it also contains an element of his holiness. As we know in the book of Romans, as Paul makes his case that we are all under sin, he says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and he's summing up the matter this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scriptures refer to God as glorious. And the Old Testament concept of glory is from the word that's most often used there and translated as glory. It's the idea of weightiness, heaviness. It was a word that would be used to speak of wealth because in those days, the, the coin, the uh, precious metals that you exchanged, that was your medium of exchange for wealth, the more you had of it, the weightier it was, quite literally. And so this idea of glory, of worth, became associated with this uh, in a figurative kind of way. The word is applied to God to speak of his importance. And this is why we call important matters weighty or important topics heavy. The glory is proclaimed. The glory of God is proclaimed by all of creation and displayed in the mighty works that God has done in saving and delivering his people. In the Old Testament, the deliverance of his people Israel. And in the New Testament, the salvation is brought to the church through Jesus Christ. We can use the word glory as a verb to say glorify. And we can say that God's people glorify him for such things. To glorify God is simply to give him credit or to praise him and worship him. In other words, it is to show his worth, to bring attention to him. Now, God has made all things to glorify himself, is what the Bible reveals, and he does not share his glory with others. Human beings and creations can only reflect the glory of God. The glory of God is displayed in them, but they do not have a glory of themselves because by definition they are created things and therefore they can only reflect the glory or show the glory of God. So that is glory as an attribute of God. What about glory as the presence of God? In the Old Testament, sometimes the uh, 
visible presence of God is spoken of as the glory of God. In the Exodus, it appears in the form of a cloud. And it goes before them in the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night and a a pillar of cloud by day that guided them in the wilderness that would come to stop over the tabernacle when they would make camp in the middle of the congregation, in the middle of all the people of Israel. And so when they built the tabernacle, the glory cloud would hover over the tabernacle. And what this did was it showed the presence of God in the midst of the camp. God designed their camp to be entirely around the tabernacle with all the tribes arrayed around so that the center of it all was this tabernacle, this meeting place, this tent that they had to meet God. And he would put the cloud over that and it would be the visible presence of God in the midst of the people. Now it's interesting when they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines as we read about in 1 Samuel, There was a child named Ichabod because he was born at that occasion. And his uh, word means that the glory had departed from Israel. Part of his name being the word glory. So the cloud is seen again, however, at the dedication of the temple. When uh, Solomon builds the temple and has a dedication ceremony, it is filled with the visible glory of God, this cloud that comes out of the place. Now, seeing the glory of God in the Old Testament always had an effect on people. The people at Mount Sinai, when the cloud came down and covered the top of the mountain and the Lord spoke from it, this cloud being his visible presence, uh, they feared. And Moses, after having spent time up on the mountain with the Lord, it affected him. After spending time in the presence of God, his face shone. So much so that it kind of unnerved the people of Israel when he came down off the mountain. But as the people of Israel spiraled downward in their unbelief, God drove them into exile as he promised he would in the book of Deuteronomy, but he drives them into exile in Babylon and he destroyed the temple. Now, during their time of exile, the prophet Ezekiel was given a vision of the glory leaving the temple because of the sin of the nation. But Ezekiel is given some hope as he also has a vision of the glory returning to the temple to never leave again. Now, that's very interesting because after the exile, they rebuilt the temple, but there's no description and no account of the glory cloud ever coming back. The glory never re-entered the temple the second temple, until, do you know what I'm going to say? Until the Lord Jesus Christ came. Then the glory of God came back to the temple. And that brings us to our third point here. Glory as the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, it talks about this dwelling And it speaks of it this way. John introduces his gospel. He says the word, and that's very clearly Jesus Christ, the preexistent one from the beginning of this chapter in John chapter 1. He says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this glory comes to dwell with us. This is the glory of God with us. It was predicted in this way in the book of Isaiah. Look what it says here. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord referring to Jesus Christ. He is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is the father of David. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who left Zion... And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. And so this is powerful stuff that he speaks of here. And this indeed is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one 
who will come and he will be a refuge and he will be bring atonement. He will wash away the sins of Israel to all who remain in Jerusalem. That is all who believe. So Jesus is described in the New Testament in this way, that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That is, he is the effulgence is the word, the, the part that shines out, the part in which that, radi- that, that glory is radiated and shown and brought to people. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Three of the disciples had the privilege of going up on a mountain with, with Jesus. And when they were up on this mountain with Jesus, he was transfigured before their eyes. In other words, his appearance changed and it became a very stunning appearance. It became very glory, glorious. And Peter described the event as revealing the majesty of Jesus Christ, a word related to glory. And he says, and the voice comes, of course, from the father that says, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. The glory belonged to Jesus also before the foundation of the world, and his glory increased as he was incarnated and went to death on a cross, which we studied about Jesus back in Philippians chapter 2. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he prayed to the Lord in John chapter 17 to be glorified by the Father and for the Father to be glorified in him. They glorify each other in all these things. His resurrection is described as glorious and he was taken up in glory. And as he walked this earth, he spoke of his going to the cross as the time at which he would be glorified. So in this way, the Lord Jesus is worthy to receive all glory as he has obeyed the Father and obeyed him perfectly, as he has secured salvation for the people of God, as he has been raised from the dead, as he has received his kingdom. He is worthy of glory. That is, he is worthy of all the attention, of all the honor, of all of us ascribing to him everything that is good and right and true. Jesus will also return, as the Bible says, in glory, and the whole earth will be filled with his glory, and the new Jerusalem will need no sun, no glory cloud, no pillar of fire, because his very presence will be there to fill the city with light. The idea of glory in the Bible is closely related to the idea of light. They are often mentioned together. And at that time, and with his people having been perfected, having been atoned for, having been removed of of any sin from them and gathered together with him in this new Jerusalem, Jesus' glory will not have to be veiled in a cloud or blocked by his hand like it was when he passed by Moses. His glory will not have to be wrapped and hidden in the flesh of a man as it was when he came. His glory will be for all to see, for all will be able to handle it, having been perfected in Christ. Indeed, we are unable, this side of heaven, this side of the return of Christ, to be able to completely take in his glory. But in that day, we will see him as he truly is. Now, at this point in studying for the sermon, I have to admit, my cup was full and I was ready to retire from my studies. I I just couldn't take any more. As I really looked at what the New Testament says about the glory of Jesus Christ, I came to see, yes, indeed, he is so glorious that there aren't enough human words to even communicate how fantastic he is and how glorious he is and how deserving he is from receiving all the honor that he deserves. I just wanted to stay in this place and talk about it. But for your sake, I will press on. For your sake, because he's so glorious, there's so much more I have to relate because this glory is not just something that's of God. It's not out there somewhere belonging to him, but his glory relates to his people. His people partake in his glory. And this is something important we want to know. We want to know that we experience God's glory, and we also have the opportunity to glorify God. 
And this is where the Christian life is so blessed. This is the wonder of the Christian life right here, is that we could actually experience His glory and that we in turn could actually add to it by glorifying God. This is powerfully important. I hope you enjoy this next part because God's people experience God's glory. In the Old Testament, it was plain to see that the people experience God's glory uh, by not only seeing his presence in the midst of the camp, by, uh, but by also seeing him work on their behalf, on bringing them salvation out of Egypt and all the wonders that he did there, and then all the wonders of conquering the promised land. And as through the years of their occupation of the promised land, that God would fight on their behalf. In these ways, they were seeing the glory of God and, and what God was doing. They were experiencing these things generation by generation as the history uh, was shared with them. And, and the glory continued, not only those who actually saw the miraculous events, but those who came after, who understood they shared in the heritage of those events. And those things were recounted in the Word of God and taught to the children by the parents. And each subsequent generation were able to share in that glory in that way. And indeed, to this day, we share in the glory that they experienced when we read these things, when we understand these things, when we reflect on them and what God has done, we glorify God in it. And there, God is spoken of in the Old Testament as even being glorified, even being glorious, when he would bring enemies upon the nation Israel to judge them. And that's hard for some people to understand, but he was glorified because he was being just and he was doing what he said he was going to do. And he was doing it for the purpose of turning them back to him, which would be their ultimate benefit. And so he indeed was glorious even in those things. The result was praise and honor to God, faith and service to God, the fruit of belief in the people of God, Old Testament and New. And in the New Covenant, we partake of His glory in like it never has been before with the Holy Spirit, which is God in us. Better than the visible presence of God in the midst of the camp, God with us, He became God in us as the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And this Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our glorious inheritance in Christ. And more than that, as his people come together, there is an abiding presence Jesus describes in Matthew as he says, you know, for where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. So like the Israelites who saw God's deliverance from Egypt, from their other enemies, from they, they saw God provide their needs in the form of food and water in the wilderness and, and all that they needed for protection in the wilderness. We experience God's glory in a similar way. We experience it in the new birth, in the sanctification we experience as God moves us toward Christ's likeness in this upward call, in seeing him work in the lives of other believers to deliver them from death to life, to deliver people from slavery to sin, to righteousness in Christ. And this is the experience of God's glory in the new covenant. And he has given us this hope of glory. Glory is described as our hope, the future of a glorious freedom and perfection that is to come when we see the Lord either at our going or at his coming. All whom God has chosen, he will glorify and they will share in the glory of Christ. Christ will finally conform us to his image and will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious one and will share with us his glory. Now, the Old Testament says clearly, the Lord says clearly more than one time in the Old Testament, I will not share my glory with another. Well, how can the New Testament come along and say that we share in the glory of God? It means that we share in it in a way of enjoying it, of experiencing it, of being a part of it in that God is actually glorified in us, that what Christ does in you and I other people will be able to point to and say, look what God has done. Now you see how it's God getting the glory, but he's being glorified in us.
Now, this hope of future glory is so great that it moves us through our present difficulties because the present sufferings cannot be thought to compare with the glory to be revealed. Look what Paul says here in Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I want to leave that there for you to take a look at for just a moment. Do you understand what he's saying here? Well, I'm going to answer that for you. No, you don't fully understand what he's saying here because chances are, if you're hearing this message, you probably have not suffered like people were suffering in the first century. You probably have not suffered like some people suffer now in parts of the world where Christian persecution is so tremendous and violent and, and really all-consuming. No, what he is saying he is saying to every saint because this letter was kept. It was written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and kept by the Holy Spirit to be part of our New Testament, which means that this is relevant to every believer that has read it through the ages, including those that lost their life for the gospel, who lost property, who lost their freedoms, who lost even human dignity because of following Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is, look, the glory we're going to get is so incredible that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to it. That's what it means to share in this glory. That's how good this glory is going to be because despite what our road trip to this glory will look like, we will never look back and regret what happened along the way. We will not count what happened along the way. We will pay the price, but we will not count the cost because the end is worth it. This hope of glory is not merely a hope for the future either. The glory is to be experienced now. Remember, as we looked at John 1.14, uh, that John is able to see, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is a big deal to the apostles and is part of what Paul and Peter bring forward in their letters as credibility that, hey, look, we've actually seen this. We've actually experienced this. Now, we might look at that and say, well, that's great for them, but what about us? We have their word, and we also have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us. And as a believer reads the word of God, the Spirit of God transports us there to understand the weight, the glory of what we're reading this is a glory for the here and now. We experience this glory. We see Christ and the Spirit inside us testifies. God's people experience God's glory and God's people also glorify God. As God's people, that is actually our calling. We are called to glorify God in all that we do. Now, when we talk about someone glorifying God, what we mean is that they show God for who he is. They reveal God for who he is and what he has done, whether they reveal it in word or in deed or in the experiences of their life or the blessings of God upon them. In one way or another, they bring glory to God that is fame and, and majesty and good reputation to God by all that he does in them and through them. So when we are commanded to glorify God, we are being commanded to do things that will draw attention to him, not ourselves. We are told to glorify God in all that we do. When we are saved, it brings glory to God. Paul describes this in the book of Ephesians. And during this chapter one, as he speaks about how God has saved us, he refers to glory at least three times. He says, uh, he has done these things. Let's, let's read this and let's see. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice all the emphasis is on God. All the focus is on what he does. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ 
might be to the praise of his glory. In other words, our salvation will bring glory to God. And the only way it can do that is if he is the one that has accomplished the salvation. All the, the various strands of people who call themselves Christians but believe that they have established their salvation on their own, they rob God of their glory, of his glory. They glory in themselves for having been so wise as to choose salvation or so wise as to have accomplished the works that will bring salvation. That's completely at odds with this statement to glorify God. That's why Paul makes the point in chapter 2 of Ephesians and elsewhere in the book of Romans that there's no boasting in the gospel. No boasting, in other words, in ourselves. Our only boast is in Christ and what he has done. Well, he goes on, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the salvation that he's done and, and what he's doing in us uh, while we are saved, he is receiving the glory for this. He deserves the glory and honor for this. This glorifies God because it's a result of his salvation in us. And together we become his glorious church. Enduring, enduring suffering and persecution also brings glory to God because we do it by his power and by his spirit and by his glorious strength. Look what it says here in the book of Romans about this. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Indeed, that is our hope, is in the glory of God. The most direct way we glorify God is by telling his story, the gospel. Our participation in the ministry and the spreading of the gospel is the greatest and most direct way in which we can glorify God. And it's because the gospel is a direct revelation of his glory. It's telling someone who he is and what he has done and telling them quite directly. And we have this great privilege of sharing it. It glorifies God. And this is important, whether it's believed or not. If you share the gospel with someone and they reject the gospel, first of all, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. But secondly, God was still glorified because the truth of him was told. And it was told to a human being and his glory was shown to them. Indeed, this comes to the heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Our purpose is to glorify God. Let's take a look at this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is likely at the root of many of your statements of faith in your various churches. And I know we have a variety of people, a wide range of people uh, listening to this and, and, and joining in on this. But what I want you to see, and I want you to dig into this and maybe look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is how they taught their children in England back in the day. Many people use catechisms to this very day, and indeed, I commend them to you. Uh, find one that you believe accords the best with the scripture. Use them to teach your children, because what they do is they teach you a question and answer method, and they memorize important theological truths from the word of God by by doing this. But anyway, this isn't about catechisms. I want to show you what the very first question and answer pair is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Now, it's older English. By end, it means purpose. In other words, why does mankind exist? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So they searched the scriptures and they reckoned, okay, the real purpose of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
And these are very important, and you can look in the notes for the scripture references that they use to justify this, and you'll see indeed, this is true. This is our supreme duty, and this is our supreme privilege. See, we get to take part in the supreme purpose of the created order, to bring glory to God. So the question is, if we have this great privilege, why don't we exercise it more? Why don't we do this more? And the reason why we don't often in our own lives glorify God as much as we should is because God has not been sufficiently glorified in our sight. So how would we remedy that? How would we see to it that God is more glorified to us, that we see him glorified more and more? Well, the answer is the same as it generally is when you come toward the end of a sermon and you want to give the application. The answer is quite simply this, by exercising the spiritual disciplines, by reading the Word of God, by studying, memorizing the Word of God, by joining with His people in worship, by joining with God in prayer. All these things glorify God more and more in our sight. And as He is glorified more to us, we will glorify Him more. And He will be more glorified through us. As you review the letter to the Philippians, as we close this letter out with this last sermon, I want you to reflect on what Paul has said in this letter. And I want you to see that in truth, glory is truly central to the thinking of Paul in all that he does. As we review the letter, we find this. He gives all glory to God. He puts all the attention of, on God all the way through the letter. He opens the letter by thanking God for his readers, by praying then for them. Do you realize that prayer is glorifying to God? Because as you pray, what you're saying is, you're worthy of my attention. Prayer is a form of worship. You are able to address these things that I'm lifting up to you, and you're willing to address these things that I'm lifting up to you. In other words, it glorifies God in many ways simply to pray to him. But he prays for his recipients of this letter. And then he rejoices. And rejoicing is a Godward thing. It is something that glorifies God when we rejoice because it is worshiping God, is praising him for what he has done. It is taking heart and, and enjoyment out of the goodness of what he has done. So he rejoices at the spread of the gospel, even though he was in prison and even though the gospel partially was spreading by bad intentions of people, but he rejoices. And then he speaks of how he rejoices whether he lives or dies. He says, for me to live is Christ, which is good and gives glory to God, but to die is gain, which he also gives glory to God even in his death. He encourages, therefore, the Philippian church to live a life worthy of the gospel, which would glorify God. He encourages them to be in unity, which would glorify God. He encouraged them to count others as greater than themselves, which would be the display of good works and love toward one another, which Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. I want you to think of bowing as a gesture of humility bowing to make yourself low so that God can be seen more clearly. Picture being in the presence of Jesus himself. Bowing gives others a better view of him. Bowing in his presence makes him appear to be greater than you are. And actually what you're doing is you're acknowledging that he is greater than you are. And this Jesus who came and obeyed God perfectly on the earth is described there in the Philippian letter in chapter 2 as the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a humility, this mindset of making ourselves low so that we can make God higher. And this is indeed the mindset of humility that we spoke of. This is glory to God. This is glorifying to God. It's God getting all the attention. 
And then Paul exhorts them to service and gives these, these uh, examples of good service to God, which is glorifying to God. And he does all these things, and it's an encouragement to them to imitate him. Because why? Because he's glorifying God. He's obeying God. He is pursuing this upward call. And then he calls two of these people in the Philippian church. He calls them out by name. And he asks them to be unified. And he asks the others in the church to help. He tells them the church to rejoice at all times. Why, why does he tell them that? Well, probably to avoid these kind of problems like he's having with these two ladies he calls out by name. Then he tells them to take everything to God in prayer. Why? Because that could well prevent these kind of problems. And then he tells them to fill their minds with thoughts of what is godly. Why? Because that's the key to glorifying God, to being unified. Think about what we've learned in the letter to the Philippians, and you will have a recipe for how to glorify God. How should you glorify God? Go back and listen to the sermons again, and you will find this is how you glorify God. By taking on the mindset of Christ, by counting others more significant than yourself, by praying to him about everything, by thinking on what is good and noble and right and true. These are the ways in which we glorify God. And then Paul gets here to chapter 4, and he goes, well, chapter 4 is about the time. I ought to thank these people for what they've done, for the gift they've sent. And he points out to how this is really about the Lord, about his glory and his provision. Do you see how in every way we are encouraged here to live out our faith? It is an encouragement to glorify God because he has made us. He has established our faith. He has secured our salvation, and he is the one that will bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he gets the glory. That is why over and over again, this doxology appears in the letters. Let me take you back there momentarily, because I want you to see this very plainly. He says, my God will supply, this is a benediction, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then his doxology, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he thanks them for the gift. And he says, I'm not as interested in the gift as I am the fact that this gift credits something to you for having done it. But... It's to God be the glory. Eleven times I counted that glory is used in a doxology in this way. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. Jude uses it. John uses it in the book of Revelation. And the author of the letter to the Hebrews uses it. And it's used even more. This kind of doxology is included in the songs in heaven, in Revelation chapter 5 and, and following, we get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And part of what's going on in heaven is glorifying God and even saying that God should be glorified. To God be the glory should be our cry. It should be our wish. It should be our prayer. Because I want to tell you something. The lost and dying people of this world your loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ, your co-workers that you love, that you enjoy, that you're with, but they don't know Christ and it saddens you, the one thing all these people need more than anything in their life is not some kind of a, a platitude. That is not some kind of an empty encouragement. Oh, it'll be all right. Oh, God will make all things good or anything like that. No, what they need is they need God to be glorified in their sight because they need to be humbled to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that the call to the kingdom comes with repentance and repentance requires this tremendous humility. In other words, making yourself low and recognizing I am but a worm and I am not deserving to know God. I'm not deserving of heaven because I have sinned against God. 
And that has to be the first step in salvation is to be humbled in this way, to be humbled and aware of our need for salvation because of our sin, our rebellion against God. And the best way for that to happen is God to be glorified in their sight. You think about when the glory of God showed up in the Old Testament, people freaked out. People would get on their knees, they would fall on the ground, they would be terrified before the Lord. And he would very often, before he could get anything done with them, he would have to say, do not be afraid. The glory of God shone in the angels that appeared on the night that Jesus was born to the shepherds. And the shepherds were very afraid. It says in the King James, they were sore afraid. But the angel said, do not be afraid. For we bring good news. <laughs> and the good news is Christ. When Peter was in the boat one time with Jesus and the crowds were around, there wasn't much room for Jesus really to talk to everyone. So he's like, let's push out from shore a bit so everybody can see me and hear me. And he pushes out from shore and he teaches the people and, and he teaches them such things as glorify God. He taught like, like no one's ever taught. People were stunned because he, they said he teaches like one who has the authority in himself, not like our teachers. But he's one that has authority. And hearing all this and experiencing all this, Peter with him in the boat, having taken it out for him, Jesus says, cast the net over the side. And Peter says, no, 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 Lord. You see, we fished all night. And that's when you're supposed to fish is at night. It's now the day. And that's not going to work. That's not going to go well. But, but because you said so, I will. He cast the net over the boat, over the side of the boat and has a miraculously gigantic catch, so much so that it was breaking the nets and pulling the boat down. And what is Peter's response to all this? Does he jump up and rejoice because he's just hit the fishing lottery? No. He bows down and he says, Away from me, for I am a sinful man. Do you know what happened that day? Jesus was glorified in his sight. This is my prayer and my invitation to you this day, is to have Jesus glorified in your sight and then to begin to think holistically about your life. Simplify your Christian life in this way. All that you do, all that your church does, and, and all the activities of life and all that you say and even all that you think and pray, Make it about glorifying God. Ask yourself the question, how will this glorify God? What course of action right now will most glorify God? How is God responsible for this, that I can praise him for these things? What has God done right now that I can glorify him for? This simplifies the Christian life as we understand what is our chief purpose. It's to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, and I'll put it up here so we can see it, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. At the beginning of this discussion of sin, Paul has this verse in Romans 1.23. He says, all, he says, uh, they exchanged, that is, mankind, as we turn from God, what happens? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we begin to worship other things. In other words, we give glory to the created things rather than to the Creator, God. And this is at the heart of all unbelief, that we would give glory to something else besides God. The most common form of this is pride, in which we give ourselves glory that we should be giving to God. Now think about pride for a moment. Pride is really glory of self. And the problem with pride is this, there is nothing any human being has 
that God does not receive the glory for, that he deserves the glory for, because there's nothing we have that we have in and of ourselves. For God has given it. James says that all good things come from the Father of lights who is above. Indeed, the very heart of unbelief, the very heart of our rebellion is its pride, which is giving glory to self instead of God. I would ask you today to repent of pride. Repent in anything that you've given yourself credit for that you really should have given God credit for because there's nothing that we have that he didn't give us. No ability, no material possession, no opportunity. There is nothing we have that God has not given. And so let's give him the glory for it. Let's begin by repenting of our sins, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you this day for bringing us together in this way to learn of your word, to partake of your glory. Help us, Lord, to glorify you. Help us to know you. Help us, Lord, to, to further move toward perfection in Jesus Christ by your power so that you get all the glory, that you get all the credit for it. Help us, Lord, to pray in a way that glorifies you. Help us to study your word in a way that glorifies you. Help us, Lord, to take fellowship with your people and love them in a way that draws great attention to you and glorifies you. Lord, this day, help us to move toward you in this upward call. Help us to respond in a way that is most helpful, that will bring you the most glory and us the most blessing. And Lord, help us to understand that to be experiencing your glory is the greatest blessing we could ask. So Lord, this day be glorified in those who have heard this. Be glorified in, in all that you do in them and through them. And be glorified this day by ascending this now to walk out of here and glorify you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for being with us, and I encourage you to contact us. Uh, the rest of this sermon series is available on our website. You'll find it at whitesrun.org. You can also email us personally with questions, comments, concerns, even objections. We'll take whatever you got. Send it on over to whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We will answer those personally, and we will respond to you in a timely manner, and we will not put you on a mailing list. We simply want to glorify God to you and give us that opportunity. That is what we pray for. So may God richly bless you according to all of his riches in glory. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.